Welcome back, having Brainiacs to the podcast, talking about old Andrew Marvel. These were pretty poems, I thought, and dare I say a bit sexy. That last one struck me as a bit sexy, or maybe I was just reading into it the wrong way. Who knows? Swim says, This was a surprise to me because Andrew Marvel's political reputation overshadowed that of his poetry until the 20th century. Marvel used his political status to free Milton who was jailed during the Restoration and quite possibly saved him from execution. Most of this poetry went unpublished until three years after his death because of his political career. A well-known politician, Marvel held office in Cromwell's government and represented Hull to Parliament during the Restoration. His very public position in a time of tremendous political turmoil and upheaval almost certainly led Marvel away from publication. No faction escaped Marvel's satirical eye. He criticised and lampooned both the court and the Parliament. Marvel was an eclectic poet. His To His Coy Mistress is a classic of metaphysical poetry. The Cromwell Odes are the work of a classicist. His attitudes are sometimes th- those of the elegant cavalier poets, and his nature poems resemble those of the Puritan Platonists, a group of 17th century English philosophic and religious thinkers who hoped to reconcile Christian ethics with Renaissance humanism, religion with the new science, and faith with rationality. <clears throat> seems uh, fraught with turmoil to embark on such a thing to do. Um, I guess I'm still surprised, says Acoustic Eels, that so many of these poets were also politicians. Even setting aside the ones who were explicitly writing poems in support of one king or another, lots of these men were just writing regular poetry, but were also politically active. Swim. You've been writing up all the bios. Is my feeling correct? Do you think that overall most of these poets were politicians or political prisoners? I'm thinking of famous American poets like Poe, Whitman and Thoreau, who were not politicians, and the last of whom notably sat in a cabin in the woods for two years writing. Yeah, there is a difference there, isn't there? Um, It might be also... It's probably cultural, definitely, and also it's the culture of the time as well. I think that politics and poetry were, for some strange reason, deeply intertwined. Swim says, It was a time of great religious and political instability in the 17th century Western Europe, which is not true of the 19th century American poets you've cited. True, yeah, they are different times and political climates. For me, placing these poets in their historical contexts, as well as reading analyses of the poems, it just makes it a richer experience. And more parable. <laughs> oh, well, yep, whatever you got to do. Um, now, I'm just going to read this little um, schmoop analysis um, from Via Swims at the Mumfishy for To His Coy Mistress, the last one, because that's the one I said was sexy. And I'm curious to know was it sexy or did I just read it wrong and I made a fool of myself? All righty then, says Swim. Oh, um, says the author of this Schmoop article, I guess I should say. The fact that this poem is basically the speaker trying to... Wait. The fact that this poem is basically the speaker trying to talk someone into having sex went right over my head in high school. And it certainly didn't come up in class discussions either, lol. Uh, well, there you go. Um, 
Cool. All right. So let's continue reading some more, or the rest of, I should say, the Andrew Marvel poems, which I do not have open on my screen. That's a bit of an oversight. You'd think after this many podcasts, I'd remember to do that. So what are we up to? Um, we've read all the way down to his coy mistress. Which is that one. Okay, we're up to the picture of little TC in a prospect of flowers. See with what simplicity this nymph begins her golden days in the green grass she loves to lie and there with her fair aspect tames the wild flowers and gives them names but only with the roses plays and them does tell what colour best becomes them and what smell. Who can foretell for what high cause this darling of the gods was born? Yet this is she, whose chaster laws the wanton love shall one day fear, and under her command severe, see how bow, broke and ensigns torn, happy, who can appease this victorious enemy of man. Oh, then, let me in time compound and parlay with those conquering eyes, Ere they have tried their force to wound, ear with the glancing wheels they drive, in triumph over hearts that strive, and them that yield but more despise, let me be laid, where I may see the glories from my some shade. Meantime, whilst every verdant thing itself does at thy beauty charm, reform the errors of the spring, make that the tulips may have share of sweetness, seeing they are fair, and roses of their thorns disarm, but most procure that violets may a longer age endure. But, O oh, young beauty of the woods, whom nature courts with fruits and flowers, gather the flowers, but spare the buds, lest Flora, angry at thy crime, do quickly make the example yours. And here we see, nip in the blossom of all our hopes and thee. All right. This one is called Thoughts in a Garden. How vainly men themselves amaze to win the palm the oak obeys, and their uncessant labours see crowned from some single herb or tree, whose short and narrow verged shade does pertinently their toils upbraid, while all the flowers and trees do close to weave the garlands of repose fair quiet. Have I found thee here? And innocence, thy sister dear, mistaken long, I sought you then in busy companies of men. Your sacred plants, if here below, only among the plants will grow. Society is all but rude to this delicious solitude. No white nor red was ever seen, so amorous as this lovely green, fond lovers cruel as their flame. Cut in these trees their mistress's name, little, alas, they know or heed how far these beauties hers exceed. Fair trees, where's ever your banks, sorry, fair trees, where's ever your barks I wound, no name shall but your own be found. When we have run our passion's heat, love hither makes his best retreat, the gods, the mortal beauty chase, still in a tree did end their race. Apollo hunted Daphne so, only that she might laurel grow, and Pan did after Shrink's speed, not as a nymph, but for a reed. What wondrous life in this I lead, ripe apples drop above my head. The luscious clusters of the vine upon my mouth do crush their wine. 
The nectarine curious peach into my hands themselves do reach, stumbling on melons as I pass, ensnared with flowers I fall on grass. Meanwhile, the mind from pleasure less withdraws into its happiness. The mind, that ocean where each kind does straight its own resemblance find, yet it creates, transcending these far other worlds and others seas, annihilating all that's made to a green thought in a green shade. Here at the fountain's sliding foot or at some fruit tree's mossy root, casting the body's vest aside my soul into the bows, does glide there like a bird it sits and sings, then wets and combs its silver wings, until prepared for longer flight, waves in its plumes the various light. Such was the happy garden state while man there walked without a mate. After a place so pure and sweet, what other help could yet be met? But twas beyond a mortal share the wonder to wander solitary there two paradises were in one to live in paradise alone. How well the skilful gardener drew of flowers and herbs this dial knew, where from above the milder sun does through a fragrant zodiac run, and as it works the industrious bee computes its time as well as we. How could such sweet and wholesome hours be reckoned but with herbs and flowers? This one's called Bermudas, where the remote Bermudas ride in the ocean's bosom unespied. From a small boat that rowed along and listening woods received this song. What should we do but sing his praise that led us through the watery maze unto an isle so long unknown and yet fair kinder, far kinder than our own? Where he, the huge sea monsters, racks that lift the deep upon their backs, and lands us on a grassy stage, safe from the storms and prelate's rage. He gave us this eternal spring, which here enamels everything, and sends the fowls to us in care, our daily visits through the air. He hangs in shades, the orange bright, like golden lamps in a green light, and does in the pomegranate clothes, jewels more rich than all musk shows. He makes the figs our mouse to meet, and throws the melons at our feet, but apples plants of such a price, no tree could ever bear them twice with cedars chosen by his hand from lebanon he stores the land and makes the hollow seas that roar proclaim the amber gris on shore he cast of which we rather boast the gospel's pearl upon our coast and in these rocks for us did frame a temple where to sound his name oh let our voice his praise exult till it arrive at heaven's vault which thence perhaps rebounding may echo beyond the maxiku bay Thus sung they in the English boat, a holy and a cheerful note, and all the way to guide their chime, with falling oars they kept the time. Lastly, an epitaph. Enough, and leave the rest to fame. Tis the com to commend her but to name. Courtship which living she declined when dead, to offer were unkind. Nor can the truest wit or friend without detracting her commend. To say she lived virgin chaste, in this age loose and all unlaced, nor was when vice is so allowed of virtue or ashamed or proud that her soul was on heaven, so bent, no minute, no minute, but it came and went. That ready her last debt to pay, she summed her life up every day, modest as morn, as midday bright, gentle as evening, cool as night. Tis true, but all too weakly said, t'was more significant, she is dead. All right, well, that's our poems by old Andrew Marvel.
Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.